Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders in education and a variety of other disciplines. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. Listen, folks, uh, I, I have to tell you, first, I got to apologize because I just had 30 minutes of conversation with tonight's guest, and uh, we didn't record it because we were just getting to know each other and just vibing like you would not believe. And so I'm just excited to continue the conversation with someone who is a writer, professor, and, and an advocate for Black business women, uh, Elizabeth Leba. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi, Dr. Perkins. Thank you for having me. It's well, my pleasure. I'm just so glad to have you here. And so this conversation, as I said, we're just going to continue to talk. I, um, you know, I had so many questions for you that really were aimed at uh, not just only your book, but the work that you've been doing. And I'm just so impressed. I've seen so many things from you in on LinkedIn, your polls, the way you are engaging. Um, I saw the article where uh, they they uh, interviewed you about Black LinkedIn. Um, I it, Just so many things that I have uh, admired about uh, the work that you're doing. And so congratulations on your success. And so I, I, I think first, it's probably a good idea. Um, I know I, I introduced you as a writer, a professor, and an advocate, um, but I'd really like to know how you got started in the work, because I've looked at your profile and I you know, see your, the work that you've done uh, previously, but I, I just wonder how you got started, and I'm sure other people would be interested to know, you know especially when we're talking about things like uh, empowerment and advocacy. Uh, so why don't you start there? Yeah, and I think it has been a lifelong journey for me. I, early in my life, I think I always had a sense that I wanted to be someone that was mindful about what was right and what was wrong and making sure I always stood on the side of what was right. Um, I'm from UK. I was born in London and raised in South Florida. So I always kind of looked at the world, especially my surroundings, with a critical eye because I was always trying to figure out how things worked and, and how to fit in to a world that was really different from where I was raised because I came to the States at the age of 12. So middle school years, kind of formative. It's kind of a little bit awkward. And I was in a very predominantly Black community and I didn't really understand the culture. Being from London, very different from the culture there. It's multicultural, but in London, they really aren't. The, the population of Black folk is uh, very different. It's a lot smaller than America, as well as it's more immigrants. So people from the Caribbean, uh, a lot of uh, people from Africa. You have a lot of um, immigrants from India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and also from China, but not necessarily, you don't see a lot of Black folk per se. I was one of very few. So going to Fort Lauderdale, it was like a whole culture shock. And I started to really feel as though, when I got to high school, I wanted to learn a lot more about my identity as a Black person and what that actually meant, because I saw that it was very different from what it meant in Europe and in the UK. So I just started delving into that, and I had really very supportive Black teachers that poured into us and brought outside resources into the classroom. So I learned very young. I was reading Sheikh Antajab and Dr. Francis Chris Welsing and Carter G. Woodson in high school. So going to college, 
a PWI, University of Florida, uh, I experienced a false arrest at the age of 19. I was accused of shoplifting, uh, was asked to produce a receipt. I couldn't find it at the time, but eventually I was able to find it because it was in my book bag the whole time, but I didn't realize where it was and I couldn't find it. So they called the police and I had to uh, be taken to jail because I would not sign a no trespass warning, meaning you admit that you stole this. We don't want you to come in here anymore. And I just refused. So when the police were called, I just basically allowed them to arrest me because uh, I just did not want to sign something of that nature. So I think at 19, having to go through finding a receipt right when my mom picked me up from the jail, because I spent like five hours waiting for her to post bond in South Florida and she drove to Gainesville to pick me up. That was my first experience with standing in my power and understanding that you should not let people tell you or dictate to you uh, your truth. And the truth was I hadn't stolen. I found the receipt when my mom picked me up, like literally as soon as I got in the car, they gave me back my stuff and I found the receipt. It was tucked away in a folder in my back. So retained a lawyer, got the charges dropped because immediately it was a $2.49 pack of batteries. So the, the state attorney immediately dropped the charges because it was from two days before and it was exactly the same item. So they batteries is not something people just go around randomly stealing. So obviously it was the same pack of batteries. And uh, my lawyer said, you know what we're going to do? It's a middle-aged white man that had been practicing law in Gainesville for probably, I don't know, decade or so. He said, we're going to file a civil lawsuit. You won't get rich. You're not going to get a lot. But what we're going to teach them is never to do this again, because yeah. we know that this was wrong. Yeah. So we're going to show them. And I said, okay, let's do it. You know, and we dragged them through court or through the process for about three years. They refused to admit liability. They refused to settle. My lawyer even told him to give her a few thousand dollars. She's not looking to get rich here. She just wants you to make her whole, just compensate her a little bit. And it's not going to be anything, obviously, because I, I literally withdrew that whole semester, flunked all my classes, sleepwalked through the rest of my college career, uh, took longer to graduate than I should have All my friends graduated. And I was still there kind of puttering along. But I did win the civil lawsuit right before graduation or shortly thereafter. And it really gave me a taste of what it means to be absolute. Going into predominantly white environments, I've always felt that as an educator, because I, I ended up going into higher education, it was my job to really advocate for students that are historically excluded, those that don't have a voice, first-generation students, uh, college graduates like myself, making sure that I stand in that power to let them know that they can achieve. And that really had been what I thought would be my life's work, just working as an educator, aspiring to the C-suite and director level within my organization. And then George Floyd was murdered in 2020. And it was just like very mind numbing, the idea that someone could be minding their own business, whether they had, and I think a lot of it, it, it triggered me because of my situation, knowing that I had been through something very similar, a minor infraction. Some people could say, you know, maybe you did steal the batteries, who would know? But the idea that someone is murdered in the street for somebody saying, well, if they hadn't passed that bad 20, that wouldn't have happened. It made me feel like, well, what would they say about me? You know, if, I, if you hadn't, you know, had that pack of batteries, it wouldn't have happened. And I ended up writing a, 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 an op-ed piece for CNN about it. And that was the first people who said, well, you know, it was, a, it was like a blame. Like, well, right. why didn't you produce a receipt soon enough? Or how were they supposed to know you had the receipt? Or maybe you should have. So I knew that, you know, just based on George Floyd, that it was really incumbent on me to 
use my voice. I had just started doing a higher education podcast um, based on the fact that I had been just 2020, we all thought it was going to be a great year. It was that new year, new year, new me. So oh, I had been, yeah, I was like, like let me get some, I wasn't looking for a job. I've been at my job for like 10 years. So I was really more like just networking, finding out more. I had recently been in the C-suite and, and we went through a, a buyout. So I'm just like, I need to get my skills together, network with people, yeah. just keep, keep my options over here just in case, you know, and then the pandemic and then George Floyd. And I think knowing that I was starting to get traction just with my uh, knowledge of higher education and my knowledge of online learning, because that was primarily the education, um, the teaching that I had done and in the background that I had was from the online learning space. I had already been informing the community on LinkedIn about that, the pivot to online, what to expect, why students don't feel very engaged with online learning, why it marginalizes first generation students even more because of the digital divide. So people had knew that I was talking, advocating for marginalized students or historically excluded students, but I think they did not necessarily expect, and I didn't expect that I would speak out about George Floyd. That's totally out of my wheelhouse. I don't, I teach English. I teach American literature, creative writing. So that's not, social justice wasn't necessarily something that I felt like was my wheelhouse, but I know that I'm a teacher and people were clutching their pearls and saying, this is not America. Right, right. And as someone that teaches American literature, I was like, this is very much America. Where have you been? Have you cracked open a history book? Like, you know, it started to really make me feel like, hey, you know, people are not really educated. And that was really, I think, the start of my journey. I just, at one point, said, maybe, you know, I don't want to do the podcast. I don't want to do anything. I just want to curl up in a ball and just cry about how sure, awful sure. all of this is. Sure, sure. But I had to do something. Like, like, um, so come it look was, for me when it's over, right? Like, just look. Yeah, come look for me. Yeah, just let me know when it's over because I can't deal with this. And I think what ended up happening was I felt helpless and I had to do something. And at that point, after George Floyd was murdered, I told my podcast co-host, like, I don't think I can really get on a podcast and joke around and be frivolous. Even if we're talking about higher education, this is still not as important as what's going on around the country. And one of my hosts said, why don't you use your voice? You know, but they were both uh, white racialized. One's Italian, one's Puerto Rican. Uh, so they both at that point said, you know, why don't you um, use your voice. People are starting to respect you and your what, your message, but your message can be something about advocacy and social justice. And that's what I decided to do. From then, I would say I posted every day on LinkedIn for two years. Mm -hmm. So I had made a decision that I had breath and I had watched accidentally because I tried to avoid it on social media, but I had watched a man murdered yeah. calling for his mom, saying yeah. he couldn't breathe. How could I go to sleep knowing that I have breath and I can do something to speak up about what's going on? And that's what I decided to do. I just decided that I didn't have a platform per se, but I was going to get my voice heard. And I didn't even expect people to really connect with the message. It was really more for me. I have to figure out why this is happening. I have to put out history. I have to put out context. And this is not just happening in criminal justice. As I'm starting to look through all the data, this is happening everywhere. This is happening in education. This is happening in higher education. This is happening in maternal outcomes, infant mortality, healthcare, food insecurity, housing, wages. There wasn't an area that I studied because I started to become a study of this. I'm like, I got to understand this the same way I did when I first came to America. I have to understand this. What is this? And I started to see a, a really a frightening trend that it wasn't a pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. It wasn't, hey, Black folks don't want it bad enough because those are the message we hear, you know, work twice as hard. It really was that we 
have been systemically targeted with law, policy, practice enforced using that policy and law to erase us and at least exclude us to a certain extent. And if we do get included, it's a couple, you know, token people that might be allowed in. But for a lot of those people, they also then become gatekeepers. And I wanted to explain that because it was starting to feel as though there's a really dishonest narrative yes. that's being told. And I don't, like I said about the whole Eckert drug thing where they said I stole the batteries. My mommy, when she picked me up from jail, she said, why didn't you just sign it? You would have been home now. And I said, no, because that was a lie. <laughs> I was not, you know, my mom being an immigrant, it's like the path of least resistance. At least you wouldn't have a record now. You wouldn't have to go through all this. But then I would not have been truthful. And you taught me to tell the truth. And I think that was what inspired me to post and really keep talking about the truth of the American story. Truth of the American story is very, uh, it's not a nice story. You know, it's not something that's happy. It's not something, it's, it's founded in a lot of horrific uh, things that have been done. And I just wanted to make sure that I told that story because people were saying they didn't know it. So I was like, okay, you don't know it. Let's talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's very powerful. And and just thinking about what you said about your voice and uh, your colleagues encouraging you because they said you you have you have a voice. What you created was your own space where people could come and listen and and so congratulations, as I said, on that. Um, that um, certainly there are people who are looking, and I you know I I also have looked to see what what how people respond because there you know you you have been as I, what i can tell you've been very courageous from the beginning so here you tell the story about uh when you were in college willing to be arrested which would be something that is very frightening to a lot of people uh to engage in that way that um you are you are saying that i'm willing to take my chances here and and there are people who have lost their lives for that. And and so not everyone has the courage to stand up in the face of someone saying, well, just admit it, um, admit that you did it and this can all be over. And it's like, no, I won't admit that. And and so I'm gonna stand on what is the truth. And and so, you know, I, I, I can tell, you know, just going back about empowerment that, so you possess this, and I, I have often, you know, so my grandmother used to accuse me of this. She used to say, boy, you would argue with a, a stop sign. So that would be, that was the way it was from when I was really small. And so my question, though, is how, how do you give people a piece of who you are so that they can have that same or at least be working towards becoming empowered in the way that you are. Because see, I, I, my guess is if I were to talk to your mother, she's going to say, oh, that's been her. That's been her from the beginning. So now you, you, you are in this work of empowerment. So how, what do you tell women and men who are, are saying, I, I, I want that. I want to be just like you. What, do, what are you saying to them? That's a really good question. And I get that question a lot. And a lot of people say, I can never do what you do. That's so brave. 
when I first started posting on LinkedIn, a couple of my colleagues said, and not the, the guys that I had that form of podcast with, but just people that I knew from work, not LinkedIn work, but like actual my real job, like the job I get paid for. So they were like, you know, don't do that. You're going to put a target on your back. And I said, well, I don't really care because I'm not job hunting. So I'm not looking for anyone to really validate what I'm saying or eliminate me from a job because I'm not applying for any jobs. And even if I was, if that person doesn't appreciate the fact that I care about the black community, then I wouldn't want to work there anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, I always tell people they don't necessarily have to be like me per se, but mm -hmm. be like me even on the inside. Because I think for a lot of black folk, we tend to navigate spaces and feeling tentative, feeling like, oh, do I belong here? Oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't. Oh, should I speak up? Oh, I don't want to brag. I always tell people what W.E.B. Du Bois, the first Black man to earn a PhD from Harvard, he said it was Harvard's pleasure to have me here. He knew his power. And I think that for a lot of Black people, we spend a lot of time questioning what belong in places, what should we do, how should we be. And I think for me, what I hope to give people is not necessarily they have to do what I do per se, but what they should do is look at how maybe irreverent I am. And I, I have I've had a privilege to do that. And I'm aware of that. So I don't even want people necessarily to do what I do, because if they do, maybe they will, you know, have consequences that they might not be able to deal with. So I always tell people do what feels natural to you, but just don't be afraid. When people are saying, well, if I do that, I'll have a target on my back. I'm like, well, you probably already have a target on your back. Why do you think you have a target on your back? Because if you're afraid to speak the truth, because your job is going to put a target on your back. The target is already on your back. <laughs> That's the way I look at it. Right. Because how, how is truth gonna put a target on your back? That sounds ridiculous. <laughs> so if you're afraid that your boss is gonna see you liking a post about black women's empowerment, what is wrong with black women's empowerment? What is that gonna do? That your boss will be mad at you because you wanna empower yourself? Then you probably shouldn't even be working there anyway. Maybe well, you need to try to get an exit strategy for there. Yeah, you said a mouthful there because <laughs> I found myself in more than one occasion, whether I'm coaching someone or not, that they they are afraid of certain consequences to uh, appearing too black or appearing to be radical about just ordinary things, like saying that this is this is about I'm 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 interested in empowering black people and I, I always encourage people to use this language is that this is not at the exclusion of others it is the emphasis on so my emphasis is on black students or my emphasis is on, in this case on, on black women and what you're saying is that that's not exclusionary at all that i, I haven't said that i don't wish success on other groups I, however, am focused on the empowerment and my advocacy for Black women is what I'm hearing. And so that, that should be okay. And I find myself also telling people that, and if someone has a problem with that, you're probably not in the right place. So you need to think about where you need to be. Um, I, I do want to go back to something you said that really, really resonated with me that was about your, your self-discovery. And I, I want to underline that for people that might, you know, dare to listen to this, is that, is that you said 
my self-discovery, I had to understand who I am. And that's critical. Um, you know, it's been it's been attributed to probably a half dozen philosophers over time, the, the notion, know thyself, right? And I, I really believe that that's important because you can't help other people. You can't, you can't encourage other people if you don't know who you are. And so that's, that's very important. And knowing, knowing the history, and, and some people would say, just get over the history. The history helps us to understand, to place into context why things are the way they are today. I think about, and I'm sure you remember, the very powerful, just ad hoc recording from Kimberly Jones down when in Atlanta, oh gosh, when, yes. when that happened. I watched that. Yeah, right, and, and when, and this was when people were protesting and, and just in probably, I'm gonna say five short minutes, she gave a lesson in history. And I remember the day I saw that I just cried and it was because there was such truth in like, this is real about what happened and what is happening. And so, you know, she, she delivered that in such a way and I was like, she knows. And so people have to know. And so I, I just want to underline, um, for those of you who may not know, just, just, um, uh, Google, um, how can we win? Kimberly Jones, how can we win? And um, you, you, it's, it's a, an amazing, um, uh, just an ad hoc recording of how people were asking her why protest, why loot, why, why raid and, and what have you. And she, she lays it out. This is why we do it. So I, I want to get next. I want us to transition our conversation to your book. So struck me that you wrote a book, I'm Not Yelling, and it's a black woman's guide to navigating the workplace. And I, I know that I've had to navigate a lot um, in my career, uh, in discussions and conversations. Um, and I, I so there have been so many people that have written in, it's like, I can't wait to hear uh, from Elizabeth, because I'm sure she's going to have some things that she can, and, and I don't want you to give away the whole book, because I want people to go out and buy it and, and you know, support that. Um, but I, tell us a little bit about what you did in the book and what you were trying, what, what advice people uh, will get from you. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think after being really an advocate in the social media space, and also that resulted in some mainstream media attention from like CNN and Time Magazine and New York Times and, and some of the other big media outlets that I was approached by a publisher to think about, had I thought about writing a book? And I come from a journalism background and I've taught English, but I've never written anything longer than a post on LinkedIn. At that point, I think I had written maybe the CNN article, which was an op-ed piece, but I really was not necessarily a writer. After leaving University of Florida, I just decided I just needed something that was a lot more slow paced. I, I just had, I had so much trauma from what I went through that going into a newsroom and saying, oh, oh, you're going to cut, you're a, a, a rookie reporter, you're going to cover the police beat. I don't think that really would have been something which is usually what happens. So I was like, I don't think I want to go into newsroom. I just don't feel like that's going to be a good place for me. So yeah. I was in education, but I didn't necessarily have the confidence to write a book. 
But as I started to talk to the publisher about what were some of the things that I really was passionate about, Black history was definitely one. But I started to think about the unique intersectionality of race and gender and how a lot of the Black women that I was speaking with on the LinkedIn platform, all of us had the same stories. A lot of us were struggling with microaggressions in the office, not wanting to go back into the office full time, being very comfortable working from home. Some of us were struggling with issues such as our natural hair. A lot of us were making, you know, some of the observations about uh, the, the the feeling of not being able to, they were, oh, lean into your authenticity. You know, people are working from home and people are getting comfortable. And all of us were like, we're not comfortable. We get on Zoom and we're just as uncomfortable, but at least we have protection space, but we don't feel we, we're, we're conflicted about whether we should be code switching. Some of the people that I spoke with, and this was just networking on LinkedIn and then having a podcast on the Ebony Podcast Network and talking to leadership, Black leaders across America, it was just a resounding theme that most people were saying the best way for them to be successful was to unpack who they were as an individual and stand in that truth, leverage their voices and, and use their voices and not feel afraid, not necessarily feeling compelled to code switch or, or adjust how they worked and, and, and how they interacted with people that didn't look like them. And a lot of that empowerment and those lessons, I felt like were really important to share because a lot of us are the only one in our organization or in our department, or maybe the only one in a leadership role within our organization, one of very few. How do we share a lot of us in statistically speaking, because I did a lot of statistical backing for what I was saying through the book was that most of us are not getting the opportunity to have a mentor. A lot of us struggling with who can be an appropriate mentor? Why did we feel that we really didn't belong in spaces? And, and I always started to think, well, why was I grabbing onto this idea that I was an imposter, imposter syndrome? And as I started to do the research on, well, what is imposter syndrome? I started to see a lot of Black folk did not have imposter syndrome from my understanding, because as I was looking through all the data and all the research and studies that were being done, Black folk didn't necessarily feel like imposters until they went into spaces where they were treated like imposters. So I started to call it imposter treatment. Because I'm like, okay, they're treating you like an imposter. I never felt any lack of self-worth growing up in Fort Lauderdale. I had teachers that would call my mom and meet, like, you gotta tighten up, blah, blah, blah. It was like well, the whole community was yeah. invested in our success, whether it was guidance counselor, whether it was your teacher, your coach. And it, we had very few white teachers, but the white teachers would snatch us up, like, get it together. They were just, they understood culturally <laughs> that they had to relate to us. And a lot of them had been teaching there for years. You talk about my school, Dillard High School, was P19. That was the segregated school where the Black students had to go on the other side of the trade tracks on the east side of Fort Lauderdale, one of the very only segregated schools. So it was like 80-something percent Black. I never felt anything that I was, I would say felt superior because my teachers were like open, shake onto Jop <laughs> and you built pyramids. Yeah. Of course you're a queen. Why would you not be a queen and the king? So it wasn't really until we got into these spaces that we felt like we didn't belong. Long, so I right. wanted to unpack a lot of that and use that as a framework for the book. Yeah. Not necessarily when, when people see the title, I think it, it feels like, oh, you know, how to get that promotion and how to get a corner office. But a lot of black women were telling me once they got in the C-suite, just like me, it was like, this is a C-suite. It's almost like you get, you know, it's like the Wizard of Oz or something. You peek behind the curtain and you're like, oh, no, this is right. not right. it. You right. know, so it, a lot of it was also not necessarily lessons about 
how to maneuver and get ahead because a lot of us were like, we've maneuvered and maneuvered and done backflips and jumped through hoops and we're still not getting ahead. Right. And I wanted to really talk about the psychological toll, the, the depression, anxiety, some of the physical aspects of that. Because I think a lot of people have been taught and it wasn't our parents or our coaches or our teachers fault, work, just work twice as hard. It's, it's called work for a reason. You just gotta deal with it. Nobody wants to hear you complain this is, especially in an immigrant family, we sacrificed. We came across the ocean. It's 4,000 yeah. miles for you to come to go to school to, to say you're tired. There's no tired. No. <laughs> and we don't often take time to understand why we're so tired. The mental mechanization of being Black in America, I think a lot of people don't understand just how much we think. We think from the moment we wake up until we close our eyes. And then a dream is coming that's telling us, you know, we're, we're seeing ourselves on a, on a hamster wheel in the dream because it's like we don't get rest. And I wanted to make sure that I reassured Black women and a lot of Black men who had also read the book because a lot of the, the same lessons really apply. It's just I'm speaking from the voice of a Black woman. But as a voice of my community, I wanted to tell my community, it's not you. And I literally said that in the book, it is not you. It's not your fault because there's nothing inherently wrong with you. You are actually more than worthy in every space you step into. You probably are looking around like, I'm the smartest person here. Yes. So lean into that. Right, and right. whether you speak about it or not, you don't have to be all outspoken like me because I will tell my boss in a minute, uh, can you, uh, let's have a sidebar. Can you tell so-and-so to stop speaking over me? Because that's a microaggression. I don't like that. Yes. And she will stop the microaggression next time we have a meeting because I'm very vocal about the fact that I stand for equity. And I think that has been something that rather than it putting a target on my back, what it actually told people, you know, to do is, uh, you know, I think in, in Jamaica, I'm, my family's Jamaican, and they say something, it's a, it's, a, it's a saying, and it's probably something that's said in other cultures as well, but in Pato, we say, Dupi know who to frighten, and a Dupi is a ghost. They know who to frighten. If you don't believe in ghosts, you will never see one. So when we say Dupi know who to frighten, what that mean is, you need to make sure that you are standing like a warrior. Because right. if you're standing like a warrior, more than likely people are not going to come for you. If you sitting there all scared, oh my gosh, you know, put my head down, whatever, whatever. I toe to toe. If someone is saying a microaggression, usually I just stare at them. I don't even respond. I do like I do in the classroom. Because yeah. I think a lot of times what we tend to feel like is if someone is doing something, we're the victim and now we feel shame. Right. And my thought process is always with Black folk when we think about microaggressions and some of the things psychologically that we deal with in the workplace, you're the one, that person is being inappropriate. Like in my classroom, if someone's talking while I'm talking, am I going to say, oh, let, continue talking? I probably will, but I'm going to do it in an embarrassing way now because now I'm just going to stare at you until you're done and I will finish when you're done. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of times we don't take control. It's not our fault, but I think a lot of times we're saying, well, maybe when things change, I won't have to do this. And my thought process is no, maybe they need to change, but regardless of whether they change or not, the same thing I do in the classroom, I got my education already. Right. So you could change or not change, but I'm definitely gonna correct that behavior for this minute because it's inappropriate. Yeah. Well, you know, I, and, and going back to your title, I'm not yelling, um, it, it actually calls upon you to have the realization that your your communication and whether it is your communication style um is cultural in in a, in a large sense oh yeah uh, for sure they, i mean and it has been has been demonstrated uh by linguists and psychologists uh, there's yeah. 
um, a, a group that I, I received training from uh, in conflict um, resolution and and they talk about conflict styles and it was amazing to me that they have this kind of matrix that they they talk about whether you you can be a direct um, communicator in conflict or indirect communicator in conflict direct meaning that you approach it head on indirect meaning that you go through someone else to address the conflict then um, you can be emotionally uh, restrained or emotionally uh, expressive my whole point is uh, for telling you about this is just that all of them are seen as valid so where people, you have some people say, well, why wouldn't he or she come to me as a man or a woman? And they went to so-and-so who then came to me. So to your point about, I go to the manager, what have you, and they handle it, is that that's indirect conflict, that there's nothing wrong with that. And likewise, that the person who directly goes to the person and and handles it. it depends on how and sometimes you you choose to directly address it other times you're going to indirectly but the other piece that i found to be fascinating that is really from a cultural perspective um was the emotional piece the the that you emotionally some people are emotionally restrained because that's the way they've been taught to deal with conflict is not to express themselves at all is to rely on facts and figures and say here's what it is while others find it to be okay to um to say i feel really strongly about this now i've been in situations like what you just described i've been in situations where um short story is that uh, uh we, we were having a discussion and there was a white uh, woman who was um, making a, a pitch, I'll call it, for uh, those of us around the table to vote a certain way. And, and so as people, some people were agreeing and nodding with validation, and I was just kind of like, uh, I'm listening, but I say, mm, no, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that's the way we should go. And I, you know, the first time I, I explained, and then um, she continued. And said, no, I, I'm not going to vote for that. And then she continued. And then it became that she was addressing me directly. And so finally I said, hey, I'm one vote. You can you can move on. Move, talk to other people. You don't don't just talk to me about it. I'm not voting on it. And I thought I was quite calm about it. I I just I was very clear, right? And the next thing out of her mouth was, oh, Brian, oh my goodness, you're being so aggressive. And I said, hold on, you do not get to say that to me, <laughs> right? And, and, but the, and this is what I'd like to hear your opinion about, is that, so I went down this whole path about, um, I, I gave a history lesson that day. I said, that's, you know, I talked about Emmett Till and I talked about, you know, historically, how women um, uh, had had accused black men of being aggressive and it cost them their lives. And it's like, that's dangerous. You don't say that to me, you don't do that. And to my surprise, and I, I will admit my surprise, you know what? As the only person of color in the room, 
no one said anything. Now, I had countless people come to me afterwards and say, I'm so, so sorry that happened to you. Or uh, that shouldn't have happened. And I said, you don't save it. You didn't say it in there. Um, you don't have to say it to me now. So tell me, like, with your experiences, uh, I, I know I'm not the only one that's encountered that, uh, but but how how do you address that if you do at all um, in 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 the work that you're doing to empower people? Yeah, and I in the book actually on the, in the chapter on microaggressions, I try to make it clear that. I think my workplace dynamic is very unique in that I've been there for a decade. I've been there probably the longest of anybody in the C-suite. So oh. I'm in a unique position. But I typically, I was interviewed by Forbes, like right after George Floyd, maybe 2021, about what I suggest for microaggression. And I suggest what you did. And that's typically what I normally would do in that moment is correct the person immediately. Because I had a very similar situation. I was on a conference call and corrected somebody or not even corrected them. It was more like, hey, we need to do this, this, and this. This is the initiative. Let's try to figure out how to do blah, blah, blah. And it was a very similar reaction. Um, I was in an office. This was before Zoom. This was back before the pandemic. So we're in a conference call, myself and another person that's a leader in the leadership um, in the C-suite. And she's a Black woman as well. We've been, we're colleagues. And then we're on the phone with a faculty member on conference call. And as I'm saying, well, let's try this. Let's do this, 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 and this, because this isn't working. We got to figure it out. She says, oh my gosh, you're, you're getting really excited. Like, oh, and I, and I did what you did. I said, wait a minute, my voice is normal tone. I'm not yelling at you. And that's really where the idea from I'm not yelling came from. I said, I'm not raising my voice. Please don't say that again. Did you find yourself and having to say that a lot though? I mean, it's like, I'm not yelling. I, I, yeah, and, and, I, and here's the thing. I think for me as well, I tend to err on the side of, it is really not my job necessarily to educate everybody on inappropriate and appropriate. And yeah. I think what's happening throughout corporate America is black folk are being asked to explain norms to people that are supposed to be adults and leaders within organizations. And that's something that really gets to me. Yes. If you're over-talking me, but I don't see you doing it to anybody else, then that means it's not that you don't understand. You're just being a jerk to me. And for me, I feel as though now I don't even, that's why I usually tell my boss, talk to so-and-so. Because at that point, you're a lost cause. I don't even want, that That lets you know, I, I usually put my, mm -mm, that's what, to me, it's almost like a student. When a student is being obnoxious, I'll address you one time and then I'm just going to ignore you for the rest of the time because you know what? I don't even, I'm not even going to waste my breath on you. Right. And I think for that part, that's really why I don't necessarily say I'm not yelling. That was one pivotal moment. And that faculty member, I agonized over that for the rest of the day and through the weekend. Cause I said, maybe I shouldn't have said anything. Maybe I should have just let it go. Maybe I should have just let it slide. I asked my coworker, do you think I was yelling? She was like, oh, if you were yelling, don't you think? I no, don't be ridiculous. You were not yelling at all. So I was like, so why was she saying that? And I was really dejected because I had actually worked with her at another institution and we had a good rapport. So I'm like, what did I do wrong? Blaming myself and on Sunday night, Sunday night, I get an email from her apologizing. So that 
my coworker, when I got Monday and told my coworker, she said, so she was thinking about it over the weekend and she knew she was wrong. So why were you worried about it? And I think we tend to worry about that person's process. Are they educated on it? Do they know? They know not to interrupt somebody because they're not interrupting anybody but me and you. (laughs) So it's not lack of education. They've just been conditioned to believe that we should stay in our place. And my thought process is I'm not staying in my place. Because at the end of the day, my voice is just as valid as everybody. And I don't even, I shouldn't have to explain that to you because if you were yelling over top of everybody, I would say this person is just rude. But what you're doing is you're directing to me. I'm not going to explain anything to you. What I'm going to say is, excuse me, can you let me finish? Or I'll put myself on mute. And once I do come back off of mute, like on a Zoom, I'll say, okay, do you want me to continue now? Do you have additional things that you need to say? Like, I'm going to let you know, just like I would do in a classroom. I don't have to tell you, I'm not going to give you any breakdown of it. Cause you know, if they want to break down of it, they need to buy my book. That's the way I'm looking at it or go take a class or go, you know, it's almost like I feel there's too much responsibility placed on us to really educate and try to figure out stuff. And I think for me, the, the whole purpose of the book was, I don't care why you're doing what you're doing, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. whatever you're doing is rude, is obnoxious. I don't have, that's be as, as, uh, as the young kid on social media said, it's above me now. You know, whatever you're is going through your mind that's making you, I'm smarter than you. I'm talking about something that's not your area of expertise, or I'm just making a statement and then you think I'm yelling or you think psychologically, I'm not really, I don't have anything for that because that's beyond my scope. What I can do is in that moment, tell you, let me finish, please. Or, um, are you done now? Do you want the answer? Or should I just let you guys finish and then email me if you have questions? Like I'm very, very blunt because I feel as though back to that original point, if someone has the audacity to let everybody else say their piece and then they target you and start talking over you or interrupting you or saying that you're being aggressive, it's like, I don't even have time to entertain that. That's like me entertaining my children when they say stuff. It's like, okay. And I just keep going. Cause it's like, you're just a child. And I just look at it the same way. If someone's going to be childlike in a C-suite situation where we're all debating, everyone is saying their piece, and then you pick me out the crowd to do that. For me, I feel like I don't really care why you're doing it, to be honest with you, because at the end of the day, I just want you to stop. Right. And I'm not really going to worry about why you're doing it or what's going on. And I think that was the purpose of the book. Don't worry about why they're doing it. I don't really care because that person's grown. And that person's probably been doing that all their life. And I'm not qualified to figure out why that person is picking the only brown person in the room and making their life miserable. Chances are the only thing that I can try to take responsibility for, which is why I sued this drug pharmacy that arrested me, is I can make sure you don't do it again. So I will correct you. I'm going to embarrass you. I'm going to put myself on mute. I'm going to stare at you. I'm going to put my head down and start scrolling on my phone after you interrupted me and then I won't contribute at all and then I'll log off and then you guys are going to have to email me for the information I'll take my time with that whatever it is for you to know that is inappropriate and honestly the only reason I usually do it is because you won't do it to somebody I know you're not going to do it to me again but you'll think twice about doing it to somebody else and that's usually my advice stand in your truth and also it's not your job to figure out why that person is being a jerk to you like we take too much responsibility, I think, especially with all this new focus on DEI. Let's call them in. Let's educate them. And all that takes work. Like my brain is not, I'm already in here by myself and I got to think about what you're thinking, how I'm looking. Am I smiling? Liz, you're not smiling. Uh, it, it, I'm just not, there's nothing to be smiling about. Like, why should I be smiling all the time? It's just, 
all the mechanizations. And now I have to figure out why you're attacking me and why you're being rude to me and why you're over talking me and then educate you on that. I, I commend you for educating her and I bet you she didn't do it again. And that's really, I think for most of us that are educators, our goal is usually like, hey, I want people to understand. And next time you're going to get the cliff note version. And after that, I probably ain't going to talk to you, period. I'm just going to go to my boss. And guess what? Now it's going to be an HR issue. Tell that person to leave me alone. And I've done that. It, and let her know, inappropriate. Yeah. Are you going to handle it? or Because I'm not going to keep going down this road. So right. I think it, it definitely is being empowered and knowing if somebody made an inappropriate converse, uh, a comment about uh, LGBTQ or inappropriate comment, you know, aggressive for a black person, these people are not silly. They know you shouldn't be saying that, but I think they play this role like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I didn't know. You did know, just like that woman emailed me Sunday night. Why was she thinking about me on Sunday night? Because she knew what she did was wrong. So I oh, think absolutely. if someone is making an inappropriate comment, like, oh, women should stay in the kitchen or saying something, which I've heard that on calls with C-suite. Oh, well, you know, men, they like to take control. And it's like inappropriate, but if, if, if we're not taking that power away and telling that person in that moment, like, hey, that's not cool, then how are they going to react or interact with other people moving on down the line? I think that's literally what it is. If, if we wouldn't allow them to do it in other situations, I think as Black folk, it's incumbent on us to just make that statement just so that we protect ourselves. That's really what it boils down to. And that's really what the book is about. It's not, the book is not about figuring out why people are mistreating us. The book is about protecting ourselves and empowering ourselves. So when somebody is trying to do something inappropriate, you have the proper tools to be like, okay, this is that person's problem. This has nothing to do with me. It's not my failure. It's not that I'm not qualified enough. Cause that's what we start to say. Was I not showing that I was qualified? Maybe that person didn't respect my authority. And it's like, no, that person is, they do that to everybody. And my thought process is you may do it to everybody but you're not gonna do it anymore after this. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, and and I know it goes without saying, but maybe um, there's some that don't understand the connection between the kind of power you just talked about and being able to say what you're not going to take and what you're not going to um, accept in terms of behavior from people is liberating, but it also um, ensures a certain level of wellness that you can guarantee for yourself. So you agonized over that all weekend long, right? You you were absolutely just you know worried that you had done something, and that's the that's the problem that we have to correct. And and that's why the work that you're doing is so important about empowerment is because being able to stand in your power as you've described it and say. It's not me. It is the problem is that you are saying these kinds of things. Um, and and sometimes and this is what's really interesting to me. And I know you you've encountered this is that the microaggressions aren't always that. Uh, let me back up and say the microaggressions that affect us are not always directed at us. So I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about, is that um, at, a, at a university where I was um, a faculty member, um, uh, not where I am currently, but um, uh, another university, the, I'm, I'm around the table and a gentleman was describing a, a, um, a trip that he takes or took annually 
with students on a mission and they went to Central America on a mission and they did things like build schools, they helped to build schools, playgrounds and things like that to, to, to give a certain quality of life that people didn't have. And so they take donations and games and things like that to the kids in this small community in Central America. And year after year, he'd take maybe 15, 20 college students, they'd get credit and they'd go do this. So we're sitting there and he's describing it. And this one other guy says, why do you spend all that money doing that? Why don't you take the money and bring them here? They want to be here anyway. So bring them here. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is actually what was said. And so I'm sitting there and I paused. And as they say, something in my spirit wouldn't let me just sit there. And this is where I think, I, like I said, my grandmother said I would argue with a, with a stop sign is that I said, so we had moved on to the next thing. I said, wait, wait a minute. We got to go. wait a minute. I can't. <laughs> I, we, can't, we can't just move on from that. Nobody's right. saying anything. That's what I was telling you before we started recording. Right. I said, I'm sitting there going, I, I know it's not just me. Everyone heard that. I can't be the only one that thought that that was inappropriate. Nobody still said anything. Okay, well, I'm going to say, hey, you can't say stuff like that. And that this is someone, you know, who had been in education a long time in higher education and whatever. But I, and here I am, I, literally, I was in my first year as a professor. And I was just like, I, is this what I'm like, use, like behind the curtain? Is this what I'm in for? Um, so I, so I, I'm really glad to hear that. And I, um, I, so what I, I, we are already almost an hour and change into our conversation <laughs> and I wish this could go on forever, but this has been, I do so, this has been a really so good conversation. Um, and, and so I want you to tell people where they can find you. Um, I know I found you on LinkedIn, but I know you have other uh, uh, places that you write. Tell, tell them, I know your book is on Amazon, uh, but titles of articles, but any other places. I know you said you had a, a podcast. So please, at this point, just tell people how to find you and how to become fans, you know? Yeah. <laughs> the best place to find me is on LinkedIn because I have a pretty good following, over 150,000 followers, I think, on that platform. So that's where I'm most active. I have my Black History and Culture Academy, where I have about 40 plus classes that talk about African history, Black history, from everything from music to dance to literature to our history, both African way before slavery, because I think that was a big thing. People need to know African history. That's what I learned when I was in high school, making sure that people are grounded in the idea that Africa is the cradle of civilization. And I think a lot of people that haven't really studied African history or haven't had that good foundation of knowledge, which I did have about the Black experience, really don't understand. So that that's another thing that people can do to uh, connect with me or, or, you know, a part of the things that I'm doing. And then, uh, yeah, the book, the book has been out uh, just for about two months and it's actually doing really well. And um, I encourage people to go on Amazon and pick it up. It's like in the top few thousand of books on Amazon, which if you know Amazon, it has like a few million books on there. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's actually doing really well. And I'm excited. A lot of people 
we're looking for solutions that are community-based. We're looking for solutions that empower us. And I think we spent a lot of time asking for the majority culture to be empathetic and understand. And I think for me, that was really the purpose of the book. I'm not talking to you if you pick it up and it helps you to be better. And it, back to what we were saying about the whole thing about microaggression. I'm only going to talk to you just as much as I need so that I can have peace of mind. I need well-being. I need peace of mind. So if you can read it and that can help you to not over-talk someone or not be, you know, trauma and, and hurting people in your organization, that's wonderful. But I'm talking to us. I want us to be better. I want us to heal each other. I want us to understand each other and to come around each other in the spirit of we have always been strong. We have always been warriors. We have always been kings and queens. We have always, everything you could think of, the birth of that is in our roots in Africa. And honestly, we wouldn't be here unless we were so strong because why would somebody sail across the ocean and get individuals that were not highly skilled to build this country. I mean, it almost boggles your mind when you think about this idea that we've been led to believe or told that we were inferior. And it's like, but every single thing that is meaningful in America was built with black hands. So I think that was a part of really my story, helping us as a community understand how powerful we are together. We always have been and making sure that I continue to be a role model and show what that looks like so we can all grab a piece of that. It doesn't have to be how I'm doing it, but I want to model that because all really I care about is Black liberation and our ability to thrive as a community. Awesome. Well, that's a great way to close. Like I said, you have indeed added to me and I'm sure to people who have are going to listen um, you have them too and so I'm going to keep following so I'm going to be one of those you know it's just a drop in the bucket but you know you have such a large following um, thank you for taking the time out to have a conversation with me and we're going to keep this going we're I'm you'll hear back from me again and I'll, I'll come back anytime and I usually don't say that but this was a really good conversation yeah. I love your stories because I, I love a good story yeah. and you're a good storyteller well so I will you. come back anytime well thank you so much and so until we talk again go well stay well with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time <gasps> no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.